And welcome to the UVM podcast, the place where we discuss all things related to utility vegetation management and the ways in which we can collectively improve the reliability, safety, legal, and regulatory compliance on our transmission and distribution systems. Nick, how are you doing today and who do we have as a guest? Hey, Steve. Yeah, I'm doing great, thanks. I've been wriggling like a cut snake in vinegar waiting to record today as we have our second Australian guest on the show. Our listeners may remember that in episode five of the UVM podcast, we interviewed Heath Freewin at Essential Energy, a large utility uh, that covers New South Wales. We had a fascinating conversation with Heath, including Essential Energy's response to the bushfire issue. Well, it turns out that Heath has been singing our praises down under as he's managed to rope in uh, his peer uh, in Queensland, Matt Palmer, uh, to provide some insights into how they're running their vegetation management program. Ergon Energy Networks and Energex are part of the Energy Queensland Group, which is 100% owned by the state of Queensland. Ergon Energy Network and Energex are the distribution network service providers in the group and together deliver approximately 55,000 gigawatts of electricity right across Queensland to around 2.3 million customers. The network covers more than 178,000 kilometres of overhead power line and 29,000 kilometres of underground power cables. Now, for those that um, aren't aware, Queensland is situated in northeastern Australia. It's actually the second largest and third most populous Australian state. And at 1.85 million square kilometres, um, for our US listeners, it's actually larger than Alaska. So a vast, vast area indeed. Uh, for our Canadian listeners, it's slightly smaller than Nunavut. And for our UK listeners, it's seven times larger than the entire country. So I'm heading down a rabbit hole of random geographical facts. And on that note, I'll pause and say a very warm welcome to our guest, Matt Palmer. Hi, Nick and Steve. Thanks for having me on today. I have really been enjoying your previous podcast. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, And before we get started today, I just remind listeners that uh, if you take a look at the podcast title in whatever uh, app you listen to podcasts, whether it's Spotify, Apple, uh, Google, Amazon, Um, Next to the title, if you see an asterisk, then that indicates that there's continuing educational units or CEUs uh, from the International Society of um, Arbiculture available. Um, So if you see that and you want the CEUs, uh, after listening to the episode, just go to the show notes and uh, you'll find a link there that takes you to the corresponding questionnaire on the UAA website. Or you can just navigate to the UAA website, go to uh, to quizzes, and find the uh, appropriate uh, episodes. So, yeah, look for those asterisks if you uh, if you want your CEUs. Perhaps we can start, Matt, by hearing about your personal story and how you became involved in vegetation management. I've worked for the utility for thirty one years now, and it was in the year two thousand that I joined our vegetation management team. Initially, this was as a field auditor. Through a few different roles to my current one, uh, with responsibilities for our strategies, our policies, and budget. I work hand in hand with our operational teams to deliver the vegetation program. I feel that having both electrical and arbicultural qualifications has been a big advantage to me in being able to understand the issues associated with vegetation being close to live electricity. Well, actually, Matt, it sounds like we have a similar background. My first involvement with trees and power lines was as actually a laborer on a line crew oh so many years ago. But let's get back to the questions here. Nick provided a high-level introduction to your utility, Matt, but 
Can you give us another layer of granularity? How is your system configured? And what geographical challenges do you face? Queensland stretches from 9 degrees latitude to 29 degrees latitude. It has annual rainfall of up to 4 metres or 12 feet per year and all the way through to arid land. It is the most diverse state in Australia in land types and weather conditions. Most of Queensland's population resides along our eastern seaboard. Uh, Once you're more than 50 kilometres from the coastline, the population thins out. Once you're more than 200 kilometres from our coast, areas go through to small towns and large rural farms. Along the coast, the network is mostly interconnected power systems and it has a significant vegetation presence. The further west you head, our network can have some very long runs through remote areas, servicing quite a small number of customers. In some more remote places, we have standalone networks with local generation for power. Tyranny of distance and the arrangement of logistics really creates a challenge. Many parts of our network can also have become inaccessible in wet weather, so we are always shuffling parts of our program to see. I was actually working with uh, Powerlink several years ago, Matt, and had the pleasure of uh, visiting Queensland on a number of occasions. I actually got engaged with my wife there while exploring the Whitsunday Islands. Uh, we got us about as far north as Daintree Forest on that trip and managed to avoid the cassowary, spiders, crocodiles, and of course the, uh, the big snakes as well. But I digress. Um, so how are utilities regulated in Queensland, Matt? Uh, Heath mentioned the Industry Safety Steering Committee 3 uh, down in New South Wales. I presume it's different for you as you're in a different state uh, and also part of a government-owned utility. We're all subject to economic regulations at a national level through the Australian Energy Regulator, uh, as are all Australian utilities. Our safety and regulation occurs at a state level uh, through our Electrical Safety Office in Queensland. Each state of Australia has its own electrical legislation and it's surprising the amount of variability there is between states. Matt, before we get to the next question, let's take a quick moment to hear from this episode's sponsor, without which the UVM podcast wouldn't be possible. This episode is sponsored by Live EO. Live EO offers the market-leading satellite-based vegetation management solution, which helps vegetation managers to improve network reliability and safety. The software automatically generates grid-wide vegetation overviews from up-to-date satellite imagery and provides insights about tree location, height, species, and vitality. The system calculates the vegetation risk for each span and helps in budgeting and prioritizing cutback activities. Visit live-eo.com UVM to find out more and to schedule a free demo, or simply send a message to info at live-eo.com. And welcome back, folks. Matt, I was about to ask you, how have you right-sized your vegetation management program to effectively fit your diverse geography and regulatory environment? We have divided the state into around 3,000 vegetation zones. Firstly, a vegetation zone is specified as either urban or rural. These have different clearing profile and a different approach to that clearing. Each vegetation zone has a cycle time. 
Our cycle times are based upon the optimum intervention time. We want to stretch our visits to each vegetation zone for as long as possible while still being able to minimise the treatment cost and treat vegetation proactively. So, for example, in a rural zone, this means intervening when the cost of treating the tree with herbicide is $10, as opposed to waiting for it to require a lifeline through at a cost of $1,000 or more. That sounds like a complicated optimization problem, Matt. Is this something that is calculated on spreadsheets or you know, do you have uh, specialised software that's designed to, uh, to crunch these variables? We do use Ellipse and Excel uh, to track the timing and movement of zones, but much of the optimising comes from the boots on the ground who are able to see firsthand the requirement to move a zone forward or back in the program. There are many layers of complexity that affect optimising the timing of a vegetation zone. Primarily, there are the logistics of ensuring that zones do not become an island from adjoining zones. When you travel to a larger region, you really don't want to go back there unless it is close to a base. Weather has a major impact, both in creating higher growth rates and thereby requiring earlier intervention and preventing access to some zones as conditions can be too wet. We often move our crews around the state as we find it can be drought affected in one area with minimal growth, but another part is having above average growth. And are you operating on a standardised cycle, Matt, or do you have an element of condition-based planning such as uh, cycle length optimisation? Our cycle times vary from 12 months to 72 months, depending upon many factors, primarily growth rates and species makeup. At least annually, we'll review any of the vegetation zones that require cycle time change. This could be to shorten or lengthen this time frame. El Nino and La Nina weather conditions play a major factor in growth rates within our vegetation zone. For North American listeners not familiar with these terms, this is to do with variations in ocean temperatures between the Western South Pacific and the Eastern South Pacific. When the Western South Pacific is warmer, we are most likely to have a La Nina, which results in above average rainfalls along the east coast of Australia. El Nino is the opposite of this. At the extreme end of these weather cycles, this can more than double growth rates. That's interesting, Matt. I mean, we're certainly familiar with the impacts of those weather anomalies here in Vancouver. Um, we're actually in the middle of a La Nina event at the moment. We've uh, had you know, throughout this winter several atmospheric rivers hitting, uh, which has actually caused widespread flooding impacting the energy uh, and transportation infrastructure. The oil and gas midstream in the area was hit particularly hard this winter. For one large liquids pipeline that traverses the Rockies, flooding from torrential rains left sections of previously buried pipeline exposed along riverbanks and exposed under flood waters. And, uh, you know, for a few weeks, actually, Vancouver was cut off from the rest of Canada. And the only way to get in to or out of the city was via uh, ground transportation through the states. Yeah, so, yeah, think about this topic, uh, Matt. I know Queensland gets hit by cyclones as you uh, call them uh, down under of course for north american listeners that would be hurricanes um does this impact your uvm program other than driving down reliability statistics on these uh, major event days it certainly does in big event resources are diverted from our maintenance program into emergency work so that our maintenance program can fall behind if the cleanup is prolonged 
Much of our network is off-road and significant rainfall and flooding as we've experienced across much of Queensland through February and March leaves large parts inaccessible until the ground dries sufficiently uh, to prevent vehicles getting bogged. Matt, uh, let's move on to a discussion about technology. As I recall, Ergon Energy Networks was actually one of the earliest adopters of LiDAR technology, specifically for distribution systems. Uh, How did that deployment go, and is that technology still in use today? We developed a LiDAR system called Roams some years back, and we sold that to Fugro, and we are in partnership with them today. We continue to use Roams today more as a tool in our toolbox. Roams has become important for our business in line design, construction, and identification to clearance to ground and, and clearance to structures. That makes uh, sense from a lines engineering perspective. But does the, does the data get actively used for vegetation clearance assessment as well? Um, or do you rely on other remote sensing or visual techniques to do that? It's used as a snapshot of the network. And we look for any close intrusions identified, which we will action. As the LiDAR flights don't and can't align with our cycles, it limits our ability to use for clearance assessment. We're exploring using LiDAR in our reliability assessment. We want to run a comparison on the number of outages we have of fall distance trees compared to the volume of vegetation within the fall distance. Our hope is to be able to identify the low-hanging fruit that we can rectify to improve reliability. And uh, bushfires are clearly a pressing issue throughout Australia, Matt. Um, now, how are you set up to mitigate risks before bushfire season? and respond to events as they arise. Queensland is fortunate in being the least fire-prone state or territory in Australia. When it comes to out-of-control wildfires, it doesn't mean that we don't get them, just they aren't as shockingly bad as some other parts of Australia. This is in part to Queensland typically having wet summers, high humidity and frequent occurrences of dry, gale-force winds. For example, the terrible fires that affected the east coast of Australia in the summer of 2019-2020 resulted in essential energy losing over 3,000 power poles, whereas in all of Queensland we lost less than 300, and this was our worst recorded loss that we'd ever had. Consequently, We don't have the prescriptive legislative requirements that other Australian utilities face. Well, I'm glad to hear the fire issue is not as severe there as it is here in Western North America, or for that matter, in other parts of Australia. I'd like to go back to an earlier answer you gave, Matt, which you talked about the tyranny of distance. I seem to recall Heath using the same term when we talked to him. And I guess for our listeners who are not familiar with that term, can you explain it to us? Tyranny of distance is an Australian colloquialism that refers to the difficulty faced in everything being so far away from each other and the logistics involved. When we refer to it with our UVM program, is about some of our vegetation zones being a full day's drive from the home base. It means that when we work in these areas, we need to get all the work done as it's not viable to make a return visit as we miss something. The term tyranny of distance 
was made mainstream by famous Australian historian Geoffrey Blaney in his 1966 book of the same name. Yeah, so Matt, um, you know, one question I had about the supply and demand in Australia is uh, you know, when I was working across the country, which is several years ago now, I recall at the time there was a very strong Australian dollar and that was sort of hampering um, local uh, manufacturing activity. You know, exports overseas were more expensive and you know, domestic manufacturers in Australia were shutting down and that was having this you know, impact of negative load growth um, in the sense that over time uh, load on the system was was actually going down rather than up. Is that something that, that you've experienced in uh, in Queensland or you know, is that something that impacts other states uh, more than you guys? One of the biggest challenges that we have in that space is the amount of load that is coming from small generation, mostly through solar panels. And the effect that that causes in the middle of the day. So we have um, such high um, feedings to our network. And if you think about an electricity network, it it was designed um, over 100 years ago to go in one direction as power flows from a power station through to a domestic residence. Um, Now that electricity is flowing backwards at times, and that's creating a lot of issues with our technology based on very old technology. So there's many challenges to get that right. Interesting, yeah. So almost like a, a supply side challenge. And uh, yeah, interestingly, here on the um, you know, the west coast of, uh, of North America, a couple of years ago, I was at the, you know, effectively a, a market trading organisation in Vancouver. And they explained that the dynamics of the, the system over here is such that in the middle of the day in California, there's a huge amount of solar that comes onto the market and the price has even been known to turn negative on some isolated occasions. BC energy market traders respond by buying up the surplus energy at cheap prices and restricting local hydro generation. This has the net effect of storing the surplus energy. The surplus energy is then sold at higher prices, such as during peak load. This arbitrage strategy allows BC to reduce the rates that it would otherwise need to charge its own customers. The bottom line here, Steve, is that you're uh, in effect subsidizing my electricity. So thank you, Steve. Kind of like how I subsidize your liquor bill, Nick. Well, Steve, uh, you know, I often hear the phrase, Steve Sislovitz, first out of the taxi, last into the bar. (laughs) And we certainly have very similar issues here. Um, It sounds almost identical. And there's a really big push to find the best way to store that power because the battery technology is always advancing, um, but sometimes it's not economical to use batteries in that way. But there's things like actually as new electric cars become more and more common, uh, our Queensland government's just announced a a $3,000 rebate for anyone who buys an electric car. That's happened in the last few days. And we then look at, well, can you charge your car during the day with all that solar power, then connect your car back into the grid at night time? And uh, when the loads are high, your car is actually helping supply the grid. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, definitely a great um, concept. And are you sort of electrically connected through down into Tasmania through the, I forget the name of the link now. Yeah, the, um, the Bass Sea Oh, Bass Sea Link, that's it. Yes. Yeah, I mean, could you sort of draw on on uh, Tasmanian Hydro as a source of energy storage, or is uh, y- you know you're not directly connected? Theoretically, yes. the The whole east coast of Australia is interconnected, 
Um, so I don't know, though, if, say, you had no power coming out of New South Wales and Victoria, that Queensland power would feed all the way into Tasmania or vice versa. I think you're probably, I could use that word, tyranny of distance again to um, describe the issues with doing so. Yeah, got you. Okay. Maybe a, yeah, a question for a, a future market trader. Um, thanks, Matt. Wonderful. Thanks for that, Matt. And thanks for a wonderful discussion today. I really enjoyed it. But I have one last question for you before I turn it back to Nick. And the question is actually related to a question Nick had talked about earlier, and it's regarding uh, your comments about wildlife in Australia. Uh, while we share the same problems of jellyfish, great white sharks, and crocodiles here in the States, I think you probably have a lot more other creatures that can actually kill you in Australia. So how does the avoidance of certain wildlife during UVM activities play a role in your program? And also, any close call stories you'd like to pass along? There's enough material in that question on Australian wildlife for another podcast. Stories around Australian wildlife tend to take a bit of a mythological status overseas, and when you've grown up with it, it is something that applying a bit of common sense prevents encounters with most of our nasties. Statistically, the most dangerous thing anyone in the UVM program does is get behind the wheel of a vehicle. Probably there is about 100 times more likelihood in a vehicle incident than a wildlife incident. Having said that, I reckon that if I went camping in North America, I would not sleep being worried about being visited by a grizzly bear. As far as close call stories, it's more how privileged I have been in my job to see so many magnificent Australian animals while working outside. I like to dabble in ornithology, and I have seen many of Australia's 700 native birds on the job, including some quite rare ones. I've also come across koalas, echidnas, platypus on many occasions. You know, I probably should have asked you that question before my first trip to Australia. I wouldn't have spent so much time looking under my beds for spiders and snakes. Uh, but Matt, thanks again for being with us today. I learned a lot. Great. Thanks, Nick and Steve. Well, thanks again, folks. I will end this episode with a message for our listeners. If you have an ISA qualification and are a member of the UAA, click the link in the show notes to take you to the corresponding multiple choice quiz for the episode. And of course, just look to see if there's the asterisk in the episode title that indicates that there are CEUs available. For those in the audience, we'd also love to get feedback from you, but also welcome input on future guests or topics you'd like to cover. Please send us an email to podcast at utilityvegetationmanagement.com and we'll make it happen. If you enjoy the podcast, please feel free to review it and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. So that's it for today's episode. See you on the next one.